The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to talk about debt, and it is a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a very, very long time. Ever since Rex Tillerson, the former United States Secretary of State, went to Africa, and he, in prior to his trip to Africa, he also went on a trip to Latin America, and and he really started kind of voicing this this meme that has now taken hold as a strong narrative about the Chinese, not only in Africa but in the global South, about debt trap diplomacy. Some call it debt book diplomacy. Some call it debt diplomacy, and they really kind of characterize it as a strategy of the Chinese to uh, to leverage and gain their geostrategic advantage around the world. But what's interesting about the narrative, and we'll hear this now from Tillerson when he was just about to go to Africa, and he compares the American approach and the Chinese approach, making specific reference to the dangers of debt. We partner with African countries by incentivizing good governance to meet long-term security and development goals. This stands in stark contrast to China's approach, which encourages dependency, using opaque contracts, predatory loan practices, and corrupt deals. So, Kobus, that is Rex Tillerson's point of view, and that is certainly the continuing point of view of the United States government, because long after Rex Tillerson left uh, Foggy Bottom, the State Department, and he's now retired in some Texas ranch somewhere, um, they are still continuing the narrative that China is embarking on this debt book diplomacy or debt trap diplomacy. So it has continued and it has in many ways taken hold because in, in a lot of the news coverage that you and I feature on our Facebook and our Twitter and all the social media channels, those words come up continuously now. And so it seems to have taken hold in the broader narrative. It's taken hold um, in Western discussions about China-Africa relations and in African discussions, but in slightly different ways. Um, in Africa, it is, uh, you know, it's expressed as worry about about whether Africa's debt is sustainable and whether it might become vulnerable to something like structural adjustment uh, programs like it suffered under the 80s. But it also comes, it's also seen in the context of Africa's need to develop. Um, in the rest of the world, frequently in Western discourse around it, it is seen as, uh, you know, as, as pointing out the dangers of, of getting financing from China, but the need need for Africa to, de- to develop and the need for, for massive infrastructure to develop is frequently not really part of the conversation. So you can imagine that this topic now has become such a, a topic of conversation online, particularly among, as Kobus pointed out, Western critics of the Chinese around the world and particularly in Africa. We were kind of very, very intrigued when we saw this paper come out of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Debt Book Diplomacy, China's Strategic Leveraging of Its Newfound Economic Influence and the Consequences for U.S. Foreign Policy. It was written by two recent graduates uh, in public policy, of the School of Public Policy at Harvard, Sam Parker, who joins us on the line from Boston, and Gabrielle Sheffitz, who joins us from New York. A very Good evening to both of you. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having well, us on. We're thrilled to be able to dive into this topic. Now, your report that you did, which came out uh, ooh, a couple weeks ago, right? When, when did it come out? 
About, it was published about the end of May. End of May. Okay. So let's just kind of kind of state up front, your report is not specifically about the Chinese in Africa, but really the Chinese around the world. And, uh, and, you, and you write in the headline, use debt book diplomacy. So you're kind of channeling a little bit of that, that American meme that has been circulating there. Sam, why don't we begin with you and kind of lay out your case about what you kind of think debt book diplomacy is and why it might be a danger, not only for the countries that China engages with, but also for U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, so the simple version is that through Belt and Road, China is loaning hundreds of billion dollars to developing countries that often can't afford to pay them back. And so the question becomes, when these debts become due and the countries lack the resources to pay them, does China try and extract something for them? So our case study is Hambantota in Sri Lanka, where China came in 2007 and loaned over a billion dollars eventually to build a major port that proved unprofitable. And then in a pretty contentious and alarming to policymakers in the U.S. and India deal last year, they pried it away from Sri Lanka in a hundred year lease. Um, so that was one of the deals that really stood out to us. I was working as an academic fellow at U.S. Pacific Command that summer, and we started to wonder where else could China use this debt leverage? Where else is it accumulating it? And what assets could it try and take away? But I would push back on one thing you said about the meme. Um, so one thing we try and be clear about is what we say is that this debt leverage is probably more of a useful byproduct of Belt and Road than a design feature. We're not accusing China of developing Bolton Road as a ploy to mire these countries in debt. We do think it is realizing that this is a it's accumulating an asset in this debt and it can use it in several ways. It can use it. It can offer concessions, which will buy a goodwill as aid. It can kind of postpone these these debts until the countries are able to pay them off. Or in some cases of strategic assets like a Hanban Toda, it can wield this debt and exchange it for strategic equity. Gabriel, uh, you you made a list of countries um, and divided them into three regions, um, countries particularly vulnerable to to this kind of debt pressure. Can you give us an idea of, of how you decided on these countries and especially in relation to Africa, like which ones you selected? So in selecting our countries, we really wanted to think about how we could connect China's economic investment to some of its strategic assets. We'd seen a lot of reports going country by country of what the debt situation was um, and the kind of economic implications for those countries. But we wanted to say, you know, if China is not getting economic returns, what might it be getting strategically and how could we link that to stated strategic aims of the Chinese government? So we wanted to focus on three kind of subregions of the greater Indo-Pacific and say, what are case studies of different kind of time horizon severity that might link back to these three stated objectives that we highlight? So the first category, Debt Book West, we focus on what we call a string of pearls or Strait of Malacca strategy. So China has realized that it's very vulnerable. Almost 80% of its oil goes through the Strait of Malacca. So how could it expand its reach out into the Indian Ocean? to protect and diversify its energy resources and continue to expand um, in that way. So that was a host of countries from Sri Lanka, as Sam mentioned, to Pakistan, Malaysia, and then stretching west to the uh, Western Indian Ocean. And that's where we chose to focus on East Africa, very much fitting into this Indian Ocean strategy and where China has been an investor for a long time in Africa. And now as we see these debts come 
do, how could specifically its economic engagement in the African context contribute to this story of using debt to advance potentially strategic aims. The other two categories, the first we call Debt Book South, was looking at uh, the South China Sea and how China could use its leverage to um, not get assets as much, but diplomatic influence in regional coalitions like ASEAN to uh, bolster its claims over the South China Sea, something that's very important to China. And then lastly, we looked at what we call Debt Book East, which is the Pacific Island countries. Uh, this is an area that has been of near monopoly control uh, and presence by the U.S. government for a long time and has been the second island chain in particular, a kind of outer bounds uh, for the Chinese Navy. And they've spoken more recently about becoming a blue water or far seas Navy pushing beyond the, and into the second island chain and how um, their economic entrenchment and the leverage accumulated through debt might allow it to better secure access to and influence over countries in the Pacific Island region. Interesting. And, you know, it's interesting to listen to to both of you speak. And I'll take a little bit of the devil's advocate here, just to, in the spirit of having a more animated conversation here. But it does sound like in a lot of the reporting and even in your vocabulary that you use, that you're using American foreign policy vocabulary. Indo-Pacific, for example, is a term created by the American foreign policy establishment to talk about the repositioning and the reallocation of American security interests with India and Japan, most notably, and Australia in kind of in contrast to the Chinese. I won't say in opposition to, but it's definitely a loaded language in terms of American foreign policy and how the rest of the world sees it. Was the intent of you to write this to kind of channel American foreign policy, or was it to try and be more independent? And at the same time, you just kind of picked up a lot of the memes. Uh, Sam, let me get your response to that. Um, yeah, so uh, this this was our master's thesis for the Kennedy School, um, and it's been a little difficult to ex explain, and it's got us in trouble in the press a little bit um, when this was first reported as a leaked State Department report, which is which it is not. So this is a, hey, that's pretty, pretty cool, cool for, yeah. for a senior yeah. thesis. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, wow, my my senior thesis with then master's for my master's degree never got that kind of attention. So exa exactly. I admire you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but not to get too into the details, but we, this is an independent academic report. But the Kennedy School has you write your master's thesis for a client, which didn't pay for or have any review of it. But we ended up briefing the U.S. State Department and some other U.S. government clients. We sent it to U.S. Pacific Command. So we wrote it from the perspective of how does this, I mean, the names in the title, what are the consequences for U.S. strategic interests? So we wanted it to be useful from their perspective. But we do recognize there are obviously other interests here. Like, as you mentioned earlier, many of these developing countries have serious infrastructure funding needs. And we get towards it kind of at the end that is that these needs are legitimate and the U.S. can't possibly try and match or outbid China. So it, it makes sense from these countries' perspectives that China offers the loans, that they take it. And even potentially for Sri Lanka, if you have a Hambantota port that's a billion dollars in non-performing, it makes sense to flip it to China for, in some of these cases for debt relief or other kind of monetary payments. Um, so we're not saying that's necessarily nefarious by China or foolish by some of these countries, but we are we were wary of the consequences for U.S. foreign policy and strategic interests. So, um, Gabriel, one of the, the African case studies that you mentioned is Djibouti. And, and it seems to me in reading the report that the Djibouti case is almost is, seems to be the closest 
to the Hambon Tota case in Sri Lanka in the sense that there is a port in 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 question, um, and the Djiboutian government recently kicked um, a United Arab Emirates company out of its lease in in managing that port. Um, and there is, there's been talk, although it hasn't been confirmed yet, that that lease might go to a Chinese company instead. Um, and it is also adjacent to um, to the big uh, the big Chinese base um, in in Djibouti, which itself is adjacent to a big American base there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why Djibouti is particularly vulnerable in your eyes, and also what you think the implic- the security implications are for the U.S. in that case. Sure. Djibouti is a really interesting case and one that we've seen change uh, with recent developments, as you mentioned. So initially, when we looked at this, um, Djibouti was a case that we were calling a more passive example of debt book diplomacy. So China has gone in, really ramped up its investments in the last five to 10 years, over a billion dollars of loans. And in just two years, from 2014 to 2016, had contributed to Djibouti's public debt rising from 50 to 85% of its GDP. And right around that time at the end of 2015, that's when China announces its establishment of its first overseas base. And certainly China's economic entrenchment helped it secure these facilities um, and bolster its relationship with that government. But it wasn't a case like Sri Lanka where it had come in and built a commercial facility that it was then going to swap in an equity uh, for debt deal and then potentially be using Um, for military purpose. So we said, you know, economics has definitely played a role in this, but it wasn't kind of the traditional case that we were looking at. Now, as you alluded to, with the seizing of the shares for the Doralite port and the rumors that it might be um, willing to gift those to China or that China is using its leverage to perhaps gain a majority stake. Now, this is a more kind of overt or active form of debt book diplomacy at play. And so obviously, um, when these rumors started to circulate and when um, this happened back in February, it obviously alarmed the United States military. You had uh, the head of AFRICOM testifying in front of Congress saying that there would be uh, severe consequences should this deal go through. And so I think you've seen the U.S. Uh, definitely be more vocal about this than they have been in the past. And I think realizing that the Dorale port, the Chinese have a dedicated berth there already. And this is facility that's also used by the U.S. Navy to resupply um, our U.S. base in Djibouti, which is the only permanent U.S. military presence on the African continent. So this is um, obviously very important in supporting the U.S. in its um, counterterrorism initiatives around the Horn of Africa and, of course, anti-piracy. So I think the concern being in the United States is that, first, in the long term, that if China could get a majority stake over this port, then it would have greater influence over its use, what other militaries could have access to it, and then influence over both the facility but giving it greater um, ability to project power over the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is a vital uh, trading route and choke point. And then in the near term, you know, what we saw just in May, I believe, with uh, China using lasers against U.S. aircraft, I think that really substantiated some of the fears about our two militaries working in such close quarters 
um, and along. Wait, wait, hold on, I just want to kind of put that there that the Chinese denied that. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of saying that they that was an alleged use of lasers. Right. Um, just to put that out there, so that, yeah, that was not confirmed. It hasn't. That was an unresolved issue. Not to defend the Chinese, but just to say that it's disputed. That's fair. I'm sorry. I definitely will correct that language. Um, it was alleged, and the U.S. military has come out and accused the Chinese, but that issue has not been resolved. Um, and all that's to say, I think. Um, this gets to a larger issue, which is I think that there's a lot of suspicion and tension around the two militaries um, that could provoke issues when kind of by their nature, there is plenty of opportunity for cooperation between the two militaries. Come on. Do you really think there's any possibility of cooperation between the two militaries now that Donald Trump is about to put $200 billion of tariffs on the Chinese goods? I mean, that 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 is just that dream left a long time ago. Um, but the idea, I guess, I guess my problem with this discussion in general, not not even what what you guys are, are talking about. But again, let's go to the AFRICOM commander who testified before Congress on, on the Djibouti base. And he mentioned the debt uh, as an issue. But he talked about how this could have serious consequences for American national security. And, and I just kind of sit back and I go, wait, one Chinese overseas base, the only one that the United that China has around the world. The United States has over 900 bases around the world, spends more than the next 10 militaries combined. And it's expressing kind of concern. I mean, I guess even you guys expressing concern that this debt book diplomacy has any type of potential implications for American security just seems kind of hysterical to me in one sense, given the massive difference between what the Americans spend on their military and the, and the American footprint around the world, particularly in places like Africa, Central Asia and whatnot, and the Chinese military footprint, which is tiny in comparison. So, you know, Gabrielle, let me just get your take on that. And, and again, I'd like to, when you guys briefed national security staff on this, what was their reaction to this? Because to me, as an outside observer, it feels kind of weird that they would be at all concerned given that the Chinese is one one thousandth the size of the American footprint. Right. So I think what we try to provide in our report is kind of where are the trend lines and where is this going? I think as an academic report, um, you know, in the U.S. government, we saw that people are looking at their piece of the puzzle but that it's hard to take a longer term view, a cumulative view. And so I don't think that we're saying right now that this is, and we mentioned this in the report, that it doesn't threaten any vital U.S. interests. And particularly given the current state of affairs, the United States cannot afford to outbid and outcompete China, nor should it, but that there are significant interests at play and perhaps the long-term and cumulative effects of this are something to watch. And so I think I definitely acknowledge your point, which is that at the present moment, this is the first overseas base for China. It has a long way to go in terms of being able to operate far from its shores, from being a far seas navy and is nowhere near what the U.S. spends or has has trained to perform. So I completely agree. But I think what we try to offer is where are we potentially headed And what is the kind of cumulative effects in a way that someone in government looking at their country or region um, or functional, either economic or military, might not be able to see that bigger long term picture? Sam, what's your take on that? 
Um, so I agree with what Gabrielle said uh, in that we do. So our, our faculty advisor for this piece was Graham Allison, and he really pushed us to take a, a tough look at it, kind of asking the same question that you did. But what are the vital strategic interests for the U.S. versus extremely important or important? Kind of how do you rank those things? And one thing we said was that none of these um, none of these projects or ports or military bases individually constitutes a vital threat to U.S. interests. Um, and kind of as Gabrielle said, that we shouldn't try and outbid China on a lot of these. A Chinese base in Djibouti is not going to endanger the U.S. homeland. But in the long run, we're looking at where it comes. I mean, our study of debt book diplomacy is we think this is in the early stages as this debt's accumulating. Um, so if we look down the road 20, 40, 50 years, if the U.S. and China, we, we tried not to speculate on kind of the grand strategy, grand power relations. But if they're in a confrontational relationship in 50 years from the perspective of U.S. strategic interests, which is the lens we looked at this through, it's much better for the U.S. if China does not have naval bases in Djibouti, Gwadar, Hambantota, Myanmar. I mean, none of those individually will challenge the balance of power. But U.S. has major major strategic leverage over China and that China is largely a Pacific power and they're pretty vulnerable about choke points of their oil coming through the Straits of Malacca. So, yeah, those the two things I would say is that what interests are vital versus what are not and what are the trend lines. So I'd agree with the point that China's one overseas base in Djibouti is really just a drop in the bucket. But our question is, what do things look like projecting out into the future? Um, I wonder if I can get your take on on what the position, what you think the options are for some of these developing countries that, that you're looking at. Because, of course, you know, it's not like these countries want to plunge themselves into debt. But China does offer a, a quite a unique package, you know, where where financing and contracting is uh, are both, you know, done in, in kind of one deal. Um, and, in, and increasingly you see, for example, a country like Germany trying to do something similar within a different kind of legislative framework, you know, where they're trying to also bundle, uh, you know, private investment with, uh, you know, with government facilitation, that kind of thing. So, so this, you know, in, in, for African development. So, so there is this, you know, China does seem to have a relatively streamlined model that it's offering these countries. Um, and it gets infrastructure built. Um, and it seemed to me just, and, and I might be, you know, kind of misunderstanding the report, but in reading the report, it seemed to me that the, the you know, kind of, that there wasn't really um, kind of a different option uh, really discussed for these countries. It was either get into debt with China or not. But, you know, and, and there wasn't, there didn't seem to be a lot of kind of um, unpacking of what not getting into debt, and by that I mean not developing, what kind of long-term strategic impacts that would have. You know, I think if, if, if you look at a place like East Africa, there's a, you know, there's Al-Shabaab, for example, a, you know, a, a terror group, um, which really feeds on systemic underdevelopment. Uh, you know, so I think there are real, real uh, actual, you know, strategic uh, problems coming from systemic underdevelopment in Africa. Um, and I was wondering how you think these countries should, do, what, what kind of maneuvers you think these countries should make um, if they don't take the Chinese option? 
Yeah, so I think that's a really important question. And one quote that we found that we think really highlights the the dynamic there is uh, President Guela of uh, Djibouti said, speaking about a Chinese railroad project a few years ago, he said the IMF has dispatched no less than three missions to tell us not to sign with China under the pretext of excessive indebtedness. What did it offer us in exchange? Nothing. And then the, the key part for us was between this allegedly virtuous nothing and the development of vital infrastructures, my decision was quickly made. So we think that quote really kind of sums up the dynamics here of that this is a huge challenge and these countries have very serious infrastructure needs and China offers a very attractive package where it's often no strings attached in terms of they put a premium on they they call it respecting sovereignty, but th that often leads to kind of fewer strings in terms of human rights or labor. Um, there's been allegations of bribes to the politicians approving these deals. Uh, one drawback for the countries is that these often leads to Chinese workers constructing the projects, um, often using Chinese material, which really limits the employment it creates in these in these uh, receiving countries. We saw Sri Lanka and other countries protest about that. But um, that yeah, this is. Uh, um, but but hold on, can I stop you there? This this really just pisses me off when this when this topic comes up. These were these deals are not meant to be employment programs. Why are why does labor come into the question? These deals are infrastructure for resources and loan deals. They're not development programs. Why is it that every time we talk about Africa, we always have to put it in the context of development and labor, and it always comes up as a negative? And I've never understood why these were not intended to be employment programs. Um, so we're we're speaking more about our experience looking at these in Pacific countries, but I guess I'd assume the dynamic. Same thing. Yeah, it's I'd, the same thing. And I'd assume the dynamic is similar, whereas we're we're not looking at what they were sold as or intended to be. We're looking, looking more at the downstream consequences. And we think even if the deal isn't made as an employment program, um, if the Chinese didn't sign on to it, and this isn't China's fault necessarily, we think they're sold or at least implied by some of these uh, countries and politicians signing the deal, like in a Sri Lanka, that this will this is a major pro project, this will generate employment. And whether that's fair to China or not, it leads to protests in these countries where it doesn't create employment. So we're not we're not necessarily blaming China for this. Um, so we we looked at this from the U.S. perspective rather than the developing country perspective. But, yeah, we recognize that these deals are very attractive and often there is no better alternative. Is we, So we also say that China's development funding is not necessarily bad. Its infrastructure funding is ne not necessarily bad. But we did recommend a few things um, in our paper in terms of helping these countries with contracting and debt management seeing if we can get a multilateral development bank to um one thing we talked about was um i believe it's african something loan facilities that were housed in the african development bank for um loan projects in africa that seemed to have a pretty good offering legal counsel to these receiving countries helping with contracting promoting best practices we offered a lot of small steps like that but in the big picture the us is trying to revamp its overseas private investment corporation to, to and it sounds like germany is as well but, I mean, you guys are absolutely right. There is often no good alternative for these countries. There often is no good option between the virtuous nothing and the development of vital infrastructures. So we expect this to kind of continue when we aren't necessarily holding these countries to blame. We're just trying to study the dynamics. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter 
at Vets China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So it's interesting to put the Office of Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, that's the U.S. government's uh, public-private partnership office, in context. They have a $23 billion global portfolio, which does sound impressive when you think about it. But consider that just in FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit, in the announcement in 2015, China awarded a financial package to Africa of $60 billion dollars. That's just one region compared to $23 billion for worldwide. So the scale of what, what China's doing is just so much larger than any public-private partnership could ever kind of bring about in the United States. So it's interesting to think that that is part of the strategy when the scale is so warped in, in that sense. I guess, I, you know, you know Gabrielle, let me, let me come to you with, with the question here about the idea of agency. And when we talk about what the Chinese are doing around the world, it's always... There is this kind of implication, and it even came through in your report as well, that this is being done to other countries. So in some ways, it, it comes off as Sri Lanka is a victim of China. Sri Lanka got into a deal, made a bet. The bet did not pay off. They lost. China got to repo. Now, I think Sam made the good point that it was that's just the way that things kind of come down. But when we talk about debt, debt book diplomacy with the Chinese, it does seem as if there is this kind of tone that comes through that the African countries in particular are kind of being abused by the Chinese or somehow taken advantage of, and that's how they end up in these situations, when in fact it actually might be a very rational geopolitical decision for them to borrow the money, because as we've talked about earlier on the program, they don't have a whole lot of choice when it comes to financing infrastructure. So talk to us a little bit about what you think of in terms of agency on the part of the borrowers. Yeah, so I think that that is definitely fair and that I think that we definitely don't want to make the case and we say that this isn't China's grand plan, you know, to mire these countries in debt traps and force them to take deals that they're, you know, flat out rejecting, that these countries um, see very real infrastructure investment needs being met uh, by China in a way that no other country is offering. But I think um, the point that we make is that it's also these um, the structure of these deals um, where China's coming in, loaning money on favorable terms with longer grace periods, and these politicians are very happy to take them. Um, it's you know a boost to their country's infrastructure needs. It's a boost to their political legitimacy, where they can say, look what I have delivered to you, and that knowing that when the loans become due, it's going to be someone else's problem to pay them back. So we don't think that it's China forcing these countries. We think that this is more of kind of a structural challenge of the way that these loans are structured, where both um, China and the political establishment in these countries uh, is benefiting and seeing maybe the downsides or the consequences as someone else's problem. But as you said, and as we talk about time and time again, that these are real needs being met and we we don't think that this is nefarious just because China is the one doing the lending, that uh, that rather we would like to look at some of the effects or consequences and say, not try to accuse China of motives or minimize these countries' role or agency in in signing up for these projects, but as we've seen the effects, kind of how can they be managed 
um, and mitigated moving forward so that these countries um, are in better financial health and then the focus of our project so that U.S. interests in these countries and in the broader region uh, remain intact and secure. So you've had, you've, the two of you have gone through an interesting process of, of, you know, speaking with the State Department about this briefing them, and it got picked up um, a lot, actually, you know, in international media. Um, how do you see this playing out in the U.S. itself? Do you see debt book diplomacy becoming a, a, more at play in, in the, the U.S.'s relationship to China, especially in the context of the developing world? Um, Sam, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. Um, so I think I think we have seen kind of more statements by um, Secretary, former Secretary Tillerson mentioned predatory economics, the national security strategy. Secretary Mattis has said something. I think an admiral, outgoing admiral of um, the U.S. PAC fleet has mentioned this topic. So it's definitely um, receiving more pickup. There's more interest about it in strategic circles. But I think the the U.S. kind of the U.S. public debate has limited bandwidth when it comes to China. And I think the increasing prominence of the North Korean negotiations and the trade deals and ZTE and tariffs have really taken up that bandwidth where it hasn't gotten as much pickup in the U.S. as it's gotten in, say, an Australia or other countries in the South Pacific, which is where we've really seen the most interest on this. Because um, it's, like, it's like there's a case study in each region of our three regions where Hambantota is um, kind of the South Asia, Vanuatu rumors of a China, Chinese naval base there has really set off the Australians and New Zealand as the way Hambantota worried the Indians and the Americans. So in, in the past year since I started kind of looking at this topic or we started looking at this topic um, at, at U.S. Pacific Command, there's really been a significant increase in interest in strategic circles. It just hasn't broken into the broader debate because I think a U.S. journalist looking for a topic on China that that will get readers. I think the big topics right now are North Korea and tariffs, all the, all the fast moving and really consequential developments. So it's it's gotten more attention, but I think it's at risk of being drowned out in the discussion. Well, that's the the problem in the United States is that our field of vision is, is quite narrow. But in other parts of the world, this is the most important topic when it comes to dealing with China. From Ghana to Uganda to Kenya, there are concerns about the rising debt levels and what it means. Uh, Zimbabwe is interesting because uh, they just had a big chunk of their Chinese debt relieved. And so what message does that say to, to African countries? Keep borrowing maybe. And if it gets too much, you can go ask for forgiveness. If you want to I know, just understand this issue from a much broader point of view than just Africa. And I think it's interesting for our listeners to sometimes see what China is doing in other parts of the world. I highly recommend that you check out this report. Uh, look it up on uh, on Google, Debt Book Diplomacy, China's Strategic Leveraging of Its Newfound Economic Influence and the Consequences for U.S. Foreign Policy. It does have a very strong U.S. bent towards it, but nonetheless, it is interesting. Sam Parker is in Boston and Gabrielle Chefitz is in New York, both recent graduates uh, from the Harvard Kennedy School who wrote this and... Uh, got accused of, of it being a leaked uh, State Department document. I, again, that is awesome. I don't know what to congratulate you more on, <laughs> that or the fact that you guys graduated from Harvard. So congratulations on both fronts. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you very much, and, and thanks for having are, us on. And are you guys uh, on social media? Sam, do you have a Twitter account that people can follow if they're interested in uh, getting to know what you're reading and writing these days? Um, yeah, so it's Sam W. Parker, 33. And mine okay. is and uh, G. Sheffitz. Excellent. Well, thank you both for taking the time this morning to join us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much.
Cobus, what a great discussion. And it's something that I'm, I'm glad we actually had to talk with them because when I was reading the report, I got a little bit frustrated because it had such an American bias to it. And it was so uh, just a tint to it. And of course, they're explaining they're, they wrote this for an American client. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but when hearing them kind of express how they approach the topic and the contextualizations and some of the nuance that they brought to it that I think was missing a little bit from the paper, uh, it was it was refreshing for me, particularly coming from master's students. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic piece of work. It's really comprehensive um, and it's very, very interesting to read. Um, you know, it, it, it raises a lot of questions, including one about what what strategic objectives really means you know i think we tend to think of it as in relatively narrow terms but you know where a big you know like armed tanker can get in or you know kind of where you know in in, in conventional army kind of terms but i think it, it is increasingly we're seeing development itself having to be considered in strategic terms and i think it raises a lot of interesting questions about about what these countries are actually supposed to do you know i mean like in at the end of the, the century um almost one one in three people in the world is going to be african at the moment like african um mean age is 18 so you're talking about a massive number of young people and governments wondering what they're going to do with all these young people, you know, um, and young people sitting around being bored is bad news. So, so it's, it's, you know, I think strategically, if you think strategically about development, it's, it really is important, I think, to, to pull in the complexity of, of, of these questions. Well, that may be the case, but I think the other side of the argument is that what are people going to do if their countries are crushed by a massive amount of debt? Africa has been through this already in the 80s and early 90s when they were they were just flooded in debt and, and were basically paying everything that they generated back to interest and never getting that debt until it was relieved. And so I think, I mean, that is a legitimate concern. People like Nsetse Were, who's an international development economist that we speak with regularly in Nairobi, she's talked a lot about the surging levels of debt in Kenya. But to your point, President Kenyatta is making what I think are very rational political decisions about whether or not he gambles by taking the huge amounts of Chinese loans to build infrastructure to hopefully jumpstart his economy so that he can industrialize and get the economy going where he can employ all those young people that you're talking about because he must be terrified of having millions of idle young men. I mean, that is really that is a terrifying prospect for a lot of people because that really leads to instability. So this is this is a question that has no easy answers. What frustrates me about the debate in the U.S. is oftentimes there is an easy answer, but it's not a fulfilling answer. As you pointed out, I think so, so rightly, which is like, don't take the Chinese loans. And then what? Who else are you going to get the money from? So, uh, you know, this is really a, a very complex issue. I don't I don't pretend to have an answer and it doesn't seem like you do either. What's your final thoughts on this? I think it's going to be really important to keep an eye on these these, you know, I would admit quite obscure issues like, you know, for example, you know, who, who controls a port in Djibouti? That's not, you know, really anyone's main concern. But I think it really is important to, to keep an eye on them and to see to see what, say, if a Chinese company takes over that port in Djibouti, what does that then mean? What is the real fallout on the ground of, of that kind of change in control, does that does that lead to a loss of state sovereignty? Does it lead to an you know a market increase of of Chinese 
uh, influence in that country. I think we're now going to see a, a flurry of these cases. Um, I think the Sri Lanka one is, is kind of the canary in the coal mine. I think we're going to see, a, as the Belt and Road Initiative rolls out, we're going to see more and more of these these kind of dilemmas. Um, and it's going to become a real, they, they are going to become real test cases, I think, for what an enhanced Chinese presence in the, the rest of the world is going to mean. Okay. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the show and this topic. But before we go, I want to give some of you uh, who are our most loyal and faithful followers a very, very sincere apology. Uh, we're in the process right now of changing our website, updating our website, switching it from one look. It's eight years old after all. So it was time for a makeover. And in the process of doing the makeover, somehow we got hacked. <laughs> And some of you have been receiving torrents of spam from somewhere. I don't know where, but I don't even know how. I've tried to take it offline, the, the email tool, but on Twitter, you have been complaining and justifiably so. If I got hundreds of emails into my inbox, I would be angry as well. So we have uh, taken it offline. We are in the process of fixing it. Hopefully by the next few weeks, we'll have a new website. It is not spamming everybody, but these things happen in this day and age and it's out of our control. But we do, at the end of the day, uh, take responsibility for it and apologize most profusely for it. So again, sorry yeah, to be spamming sorry. you. <laughs> it's, not, it's so embarrassing, but that's, I guess, I don't know what else to do. It wasn't our fault, but that's the way it is. Yeah, we're just, we're just apologizing from that's Africa it. and from China. Yeah. Falling on our sword. But anyway, so that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I are going to be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.